Hello and welcome to Simply Why. I am your host, Connor Reed. Simply Why is a podcast brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University, where we do a deep dive into the stories behind our outcomes. Our guests share the choices that changed their lives, the paths that led them to where they are, and of course, the why at the heart of it all. Our guest today is Dr. Scott Burson. Dr. Burson is Professor of Philosophy and Theology in Sports Ministries. He has taught at IWU for more than a dozen years and is also the author of multiple books, including All About the Base, Searching for Trouble in the Midst of a Pounding Culture War, Brian McLaren in Focus, and most recently, From Bulldog to Bengal, The Joe Burrow Story Through the Eyes of His Hometown. Dr. Burson, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Connor. All right, well, let's just dig in with some heavy, hard-hitting philosophical questions then. Question number one, mere Christianity or the abolition of man? (laughs) Uh, that's a great question. I, I guess I have to go with mere Christianity. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll side with Christianity Today readers. There was a survey done about 20 years ago, the most influential spiritual books in their life, and mere Christianity was number one by a long margin. But I do like The Abolition of Man as well. Awesome. This second question is just a giveaway because I already know what it's going to be, <laughs> Bengals or Colts. Uh, It's going to be the Bengals. I grew up in Ohio, in Southeast Ohio. So the Bengals have been a franchise since 1968. And I've been a a proud Bengals fan since 1968. I was only six in 1968, but my dad was a fan. So I had to be a fan of the Bengals. Gotcha. And question number three, how should we then live or the God who is there? Little Francis Schaeffer. I think all of uh, Francis Schaeffer's works, but uh, I think I'll I'll go off the beaten path and, and pick a different book, True Spirituality. Uh, where he had a spiritual crisis and he came back and he wrote that book and it had more to do with individual spirituality and living out his life uh, committed to Christ on a day-to-day basis. So I think I'll go with that one. Awesome. Well, I just kind of want to dig into your past a little bit yeah. of how you got to be where you are. So not only are you a professor, you are also an author and you're a professor of philosophy and theology. And I I mean, I guess it, it relates a little bit more into sports ministries, but so when did your passion for football first start, so much so that you decided to write a book about it, and not just about football, but about a particular player and a player who is very, very popular nowadays? So how does that kind of weave into your story of where you are today? Well, I mean, I've had an, an interesting life, um, very blessed by God. I started my, my career actually as a sports writer, and I worked in the sports information business which is public relations for, for institutions. I worked at the University of Florida with the Gators back in the 1980s. And there was a guy named Emmett Smith, all-time leading rusher in NFL history now. But he was with the Gators at that time. And I helped promote him for the Heisman Trophy. I managed a national sports publishing company for a while. And so I was involved in football and basketball, baseball, and lots of different sports, but doing uh, publications and doing writing. So I did that for quite a while. And then I started working at Asbury Seminary and I was their uh, PR person. And I got my master's degree there. I had an undergrad already in place in uh, communications and public relations. So I got my master's degree there, went on and got my PhD. But I was in marketing and PR for quite a while. And then I came to Iowa actually originally as the uh, AVP for marketing here. And I was an adjunct in philosophy and theology. So at any rate, I've been teaching uh, full-time for 15 years. But my hometown is Joe Burrow's hometown. And so it just seemed like this project, you know, all the planets aligned. And his parents actually go to the Wesleyan Church in Athens as well. So that's another connection to Indiana Wesleyan. So it was really a, a labor of love to kind of give this project, give this book back to my hometown, where Joe Burrow is just off the charts popular, especially in, in Southeast Ohio, but uh, also in Cincinnati and Louisiana, where he, he went, to, went to college. 
Well, kind of looking at this from a content side, I mean, he is a a fairly young player in a sense. And I feel like a lot of sports biographies are written on people who maybe their careers are finished or they've transitioned on to something else. So what was it like trying to get and do research on a fairly, you know, new player in the sense and avoiding just the sense of like, oh, it's a phenomenon sort of thing, but looking at it, oh, no, there's there's a history behind this. There's a history behind this, who this person is. And why did you think Joe Burrow was deserving of a book, too? Well, it's kind of interesting. This project didn't start as a book on Joe Burrow. It actually started as a book on seven prominent uh, graduates from my high school. Athens High School, which is in Appalachia, fairly small high school. Athens, Ohio is also home to Ohio University, so there's a lot of diversity there because of the university. It started out as, as I won't tell all seven, but a couple of them. So one, one of them, I went to high school with a, a lady by the name of Maya Lin, and Maya Lin, when she was at Yale, actually designed the Vietnam Vet War Memorial as an undergrad at Yale, and she's a very prominent uh, architect, environmental designer now. Another one, uh, his name is Atul Gawande, went to high school with him. He's a couple years behind me, but he's in the Biden administration now. And uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a physician, a surgeon. Uh, He's taught at Harvard. uh, So he's based out of Boston. Some big names there. Joe would have been in the sports lane. You know, they would have been in the design lane and the the medical lane, public health lane. Another guy went to high school with uh, has been in the rock and roll business his whole adult life. And he's run security for everybody. But he was Ozzy Osbourne's manager. So you can imagine some of the stories he might have to tell. So that was the original idea to you know, have these snapshots, short chapters on each of these people. But when I went back to Athens, I started interviewing folks for that book. I got so much great stuff on Joe that I went back to the publisher and we agreed, you know, we can, we can do a full book on Joe Burrow. The first 25 years of his life, a celebration of his first 25 years. So he's accomplished more in 25 years than most people do. In a lifetime, and I'm sure there'll be other biographies along the way, but this one is especially from the perspective of the hometown. And so I interviewed 60 people, around 60 people from Athens County. So you, you do get uh, perspective, you know, from uh, Southeast Ohio, perspective of his coaches, his teammates, his best friends. Uh, you know, his parents were very helpful. They authorized it. Joe authorized it. And then they read through every chapter as I was writing it. I co-authored it uh, with his first football coach, his youth football coach. Sam Smathers, who's a great guy, real character. If you if you ever have a chance to see his picture, you know, he's got this big beard and he's kind of like Duck Dynasty. And so we worked together on the project and it was a lot of fun. In making this book and doing the research for it, what was it like tracking down these individuals, getting their stories? And then also just, like you said, so many people have so many different stories about so many things. How do you narrow it down and edit it all into one cohesive story? Every writer, every author has a different system or methodology. I mean, for me, I use whiteboard. I love to brainstorm on a, on a whiteboard. And so when I get a story, great anecdote in an interview, I'll put it on the whiteboard. And at the beginning, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, I start out with a loose structure and an outline, you know, for, for the book. But, you know, it's evolving organically as I'm, I'm writing it. And uh, this one definitely did. As I got more and more stories, I'm like, oh, okay, that would be a great story for chapter two. But then I realized wait a second, I need to make sure I hold some of these stories back, you know, for the end, because I want a strong Athens hometown thread throughout the entire book. So it's kind of like moving puzzle pieces around, uh, you know, as, as the story is, is emerging. I'll also add to kind of go back to your previous question in terms of research. There are close to 800 citations in the book. The personal contact was my co-author. I mean, he's known Joe pretty much Joe's whole life since he was in third grade and he stays in touch with Joe. But Joe's a very private guy. 
And so I didn't have a personal interview with, with Joe, which was challenging. But fortunately, Joe's done a lot of press conferences. So there's a lot of public information out there. So I likely have seen every press conference at least once he's ever done. I've read every interview that's ever been published on him. You know, having a PhD and having to do extensive research to get a successful completion of a PhD was something that helped me in this project as well. That's great. Digging a little bit more into you and sports and particularly sports and ministries. So we've had Greg Tonegal and Andrew Rohde on the show talking about how they infuse pastoring with coaching. So then how do you see faith playing a role in sports? I mean, teaching sports ministries, like how do you see that going together? And how do you see sports as a way to be a disciple and to evangelize and to just spread the word of God? Yeah, I mean, it's been my experience that there, there are two universal languages, and one of them is music, and one of them is sports. I know this personally because my mother was a music teacher and my dad was a coach. <laughs> so I kind of grew up in that environment. I, I swam in that water, uh, in those waters growing up. I was a basketball player. Uh, I played basketball in college. And so that was a big part of my upbringing. But again, my, my mother was a music teacher. I think as a Christian, it's been my experience that when you travel around the world, you can drop a ball on the ground just about anywhere and people know what to do with it, right? And so it's a great connecting tissue. It's a great uh, piece of common ground platform to share to share your faith. So, you know, once you build a bridge to somebody and you start uh, playing sports with them, it opens the door for conversation, right? And once you're on the same team and, and you have a common, you know, cause of, of kicking that ball around or shooting the ball, then it just opens up the door, I think, uh, for the gospel. And so I've had been fortunate enough to go on mission trips all around the world and sports mission trips uh, have been the primary way in which the gospel has been shared. That's awesome. So then how did you get to the place of where you are? So I know you you were in writing beforehand, then mm-hmm. you were in marketing, you worked in marketing at IWU. So then how did you transition into being a professor here? And what was that process like for you? Yeah, so when I got my master's degree and I was working at Asbury Seminary as their communications PR person, I had said earlier that I was also working on my master's degree. And I actually wrote my first book when I was still working on my master's degree with one of the professors there. And it was a book on C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. And it, it grew out of a class that I, I took with him, a C.S. Lewis class. So I started sensing, you know, this is probably my future. You know, God's prompting me. The door opened for me to come to IWU in this capacity as an, as an administrator. But I also knew there'd be a chance to start adjuncting. Yes, I wanted to get my best, you know, in the marketing side. But I, I really felt like my long-term call was to be in a position where I could write and I could teach. And, and that's what has worked out. So for the last 15 years, again, I've been a full-time faculty member. I think one of the things I would do as well is it helps students identify their sense of calling and purpose. And we all know that you may not be in the same job or even in the same profession, you know, for your, your whole adult life. But if you have a sense of your calling, that can express itself in a wide variety of ways. And so one of the things I figured out, you know, when I came here was I really feel like my calling is to be a persuasive communicator. I've done that in public relations and in marketing. I've done that as, a, as an author. I've written a lot of, of apologetics as well. I try to do that in the classroom. That's been kind of the common thread. When I talk to people about my disparate kind of history, professional history, that's one way of kind of tying it together. I think that's awesome just mm-hmm. how varied your past working experiences have been. And I'm curious as to one element that we haven't really touched on so far. I mean, maybe a little bit in C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer but of how philosophy plays into this as well. Because I feel like when people think of sports and when they think of marketing, they usually don't think of philosophy intertwining with that. So how did you take your previous experiences 
And when you transitioned into being a professor, where did the philosophy side of that come from? A lot of philosophy is about thinking well, you know, and thinking logically and uh, thinking through, you know, what kind of argument might be most persuasive. And part of that is understanding psychology, right, and, and how to connect with people. I think all those things translate, you know, into PR and marketing. I mean, you have a product, you know, that you're, you're selling and trying to understand your audience, what's the right way to communicate that so it's going to move them to a decision. And fortunately, working for a place like Indiana Wesleyan, you believe in the product. I mean, we believe in, our, in, in what we're selling, if you want to put it that way, uh, that it's going to enhance people's lives. I would find it difficult to work for an organization, you know, where I'm trying to sell something that I really didn't believe in, right? But I think that's part of it. I think maybe that's one of the connections is, you know, philosophy. We're wanting to identify fallacies. We want to think well. Uh, we want to analyze our, our own thinking as well as the thinking of others. Well, we've had quite a few scientists on this show, and we've talked about the balance of science and faith. Mm. But I want to talk a little bit about the balance of philosophy and faith, because mm. I feel like there can be, throughout Christian history, a general fear of maybe thoughts that deviate from what is taught biblically or that might make you question certain things. And maybe philosophy isn't as people aren't keyed in onto philosophy as much as they are into science, mm -hmm. but... Still, a lot of the classic philosophers were not Christian, did not come from a Christian background, or were very atheistic in their opinions. So how do you go about teaching these courses saying, there's still interesting stuff that we can pick apart here, but not feeling, I'll say, disturbed in your faith by reading Nietzsche or anything like that? Yeah. Uh, one of the things I try to emphasize in, in my class is that, uh, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty— we can appreciate it wherever we find it in the world because it only has one source. I mean, it all goes back to God, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of where we find it, no matter who the author is. And I encourage my students to, to read widely. But that does require uh, being discerning. It requires being well-grounded in your faith and understanding worldviews. And uh, one of the things I do use in my class is Jim Sire's classic book, uh, Universe Next Door. Still use that. And I think it helps students realize, oh, okay. This is where they're coming from. This is what a naturalist believes. And once they can identify that, okay, well, I don't have to believe with these presuppositions, these presuppositions that they're, they're operating from, but there's still some insight here. And how can I then incorporate that into my worldview without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? And I think what that does is it allows us to humanize people who have different worldviews than us and recognize they're still made in God's image. They're still capable of expressing truth, goodness, and beauty. You know, we can build friendships, you know, and relationships with people without being afraid if we feel well-grounded in our own faith. And we also understand kind of where they're going or coming from. Yeah. And I'm interested to see how you incorporate both philosophers and theologians and maybe balance the line between them. Because even though I just said there's a lot <laughs> of classic philosophers who aren't Christian, there's also a lot of classic philosophers who are. I mean, you could look at Aquinas, Augustine, you know, so many other people. Right. So where do you kind of see the line and the difference between a Christian philosopher and a theologian? Yeah, I'm not sure I make a huge distinction personally. I mean, my training is in philosophical theology. So I, I try to lean into those, those resources in that area. So for instance, one area I really enjoy talking about is like free will and predestination or free will and determinism. And philosophy is very helpful in helping us ease some of the tension in that theological debate or the problem of evil. You know, I found philosophy to be extremely helpful in trying to make sense of uh, you know, why a, a God who's all-powerful and perfectly loving might allow a certain degree of suffering in the world. But 
So for me personally, I mean, those lines blur a little bit for me, but but philosophy informs my my uh, theological teaching for sure. Definitely. I feel like it provides a balm in, yeah. you know, easing you through those process. I mean, I, I went through the whole angsty teenage yeah, phase of yeah. trying to figure out what do I believe? And Kierkegaard was actually a great help for me in that. Right. And like, you, like you're saying of discussing the difference between good and evil and like, how do we, you know, kind of work through that and how does God play into that? So how do you then teach philosophy in a way of saying, oh, this is something that applies to your faith and this is something that can enrich your faith? You know, the first day of class, I do tell students, we're going to deal with some esoteric content. I mean, philosophy, you can't get around that when you're talking about philosophy. And you don't always have black and white, right and wrong answers, right? you got different schools of thought. But I do want them always thinking about what difference does it make in my life and back to the problem of evil or back to predestination and free will. And again, I'm not arguing for one position or another when I'm, I'm saying this, but, you know, it, in my mind, if everything's determined what's motivating me to get out of bed in the morning, right? If I feel like I have some degree of control and agency over my choices and I'm working as a in dual agency with the Holy Spirit, that might motivate me to go on a mission trip or to reach out and share my faith in a way that uh, I might not be as motivated otherwise. And I, I know someone who's coming from a more Calvinist perspective would, uh, would talk about, frame that maybe a little differently. But to me, that's very practical. I ask students questions like, was it possible, you know, for you to go to Taylor instead of Iowa or Huntington instead of Iowa, or was that fully determined for you? I mean, what role, you know, does your own agency play? That gets them thinking about the choices that they make. Same thing with problem of evil. You know, how, how am I going to counsel someone who's going, who's in the throes of pain and suffering? You know, one strategy, you know, that might be unhelpful is to whip out your philosophy notes and talk about various proposed solutions to the problem of evil or theodicies if they are struggling in that moment. I mean, that's probably the time to hold a hand and to come alongside and bring a meal and cry with your friend and just allow them to vent. So all those things I think are very practical, but I'm constantly thinking about threads of connection to what difference does it make in your life. That is some wonderful advice, and I think a great way to wrap up this episode. Dr. Burson, thank you so much for yeah. being on today. Is there a place where people can go to find your books? Yeah, Amazon is always the best place. So all my books are available on Amazon. So if you just search me, Scott Burson, B-U-R-S-O-N, you'll find them. Great. We'll make sure to put a link to those in our show notes. And again, thanks again for being on today. Yeah, thanks, Connor. I appreciate it. Simply Why is brought to you by Indiana Wesleyan University. IWU is a nationally renowned, Christ-centered academic community dedicated to providing leading, innovative education opportunities for students of all ages, backgrounds, and life stages. To learn more about IWU's online, on-site, and hybrid programs, visit indwes.edu. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.